So this morning we're in Luke chapter 5 and we're looking at verses 27 to 32. Before we get to this passage, I want to put this verse from John chapter 3 verse 17 before you again. And I'll put it up here for you as well. This is the picture frame around this passage we're going to be looking at this morning. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So let's see how Jesus Christ saves sinners. Because He loves sinners. And Jesus Christ still loves sinners today. And so here we are in the book of Luke, chapter 5, and verse 27. After that, he, that is Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now we are dear old Pharisees. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, this passage that we just looked at this morning, the calling of Levi, contains one of the most clarifying and the defining statements that Jesus ever made in his ministry. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In this sentence, Jesus tells us why there was an incarnation. Why did he become man? In this sentence, Jesus tells us why he was virgin born. He tells us why he lived, why he died, why he rose, why he ascended on high, and why he intercedes for you and I. The whole of salvation is summed up in that statement. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus Christ came to save those sinners who would repent. The Christian faith, you see, is not for good people. You might have had other thoughts about this. The Christian faith is not for good people. It is for sinners. The church, you and I, as we sit here today, as we've got here together in this building, the church is not for people who think they are righteous. It's for people who know that they are not righteous. Do you get the difference? If you think you're righteous here this morning, you need to listen to this message from Jesus Christ. That's why you and I are here today. We know we are not righteous on our own. John MacArthur said it this way, he said, The church is not a club for the righteous, it is a hospital for the sin-sick. Are you sin-sick this morning? Are you unsettled and distressed about your own sinfulness? 
then you're in the right place today. If you're not unsettled about your own sinfulness, then listen to this message this morning. You're still in the right place today. Whose sins does Jesus Christ forgive? This one who loves sinners. Whose sin does he forgive? How far will Jesus actually go to rescue sinners? And the answer is, praise the Lord, the answer is, he will go so far down that he even saved a tax gatherer in the New Testament. He even saved a tax collector. Well, that doesn't seem to shock anyone. All right. So, what was so bad about a tax collector? You see, now we have to carry on. What was so bad about these tax collectors? Well, I'll tell you. These tax collectors had an extremely bad reputation. They were, in general, Jewish men working for the Roman government. Now, that in itself was enough. A Jew working for the Romans, the enemy. How dare they? But they were Jewish men who were working for the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people. You see, they're getting a bad rap now here. So here they are, working for the Romans, collecting the Jewish money for the enemy. Do you get it? It's not all there. The Romans had a system in place called tax farming. And it's kind of got a parallel today too, but I'm not going to go too deeply into that. They had a system they called tax farming, and what the Romans did was they assessed a certain tax figure for a province, and in this case we're reading that, it was Galilee, and then they sold the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidders, franchise owners in our language. And so these Jewish men could buy the franchise to tax their own people for the Romans. You're starting to see how bad they were? Not? Okay, I'll carry on. And these franchise buyers had to hand over the assessed figure at the end of the tax year and then they could keep any excess that they might just have gathered in. But they made real sure that they gathered in an excess. And so what they did was they asked more than what they needed to, quite a lot more than what they needed to from their own people. And so we find that there were duties and tolls and taxes and if you thought you had a bad time today, think again. During this time that we're talking about, it was one of the highest tax regimes ever out in civilization. There were duties, tolls and taxes on roads, on bridges, on docking your boat in the harbour, on import, on export. There were taxes on carts, and they didn't just tax them on the cart as a whole. They taxed it on the axle. I've heard that one before too today. And they taxed it on every wheel on that cart. Now talk about being exorbitant, right? So these 16-wheeler trucks, they'd be in trouble today. There were tax on carts, wheel tax. There was letter tax, package tax, market tax, land tax. Sound familiar? They cheated their own people to get rich. If I was Jew, I'd spit on the ground right now. But I won't. So what happens if you couldn't pay the tax? As your own Jewish countrymen, what happened? Depended on the day, you see, if they thought that you'd never be able to pay it off at all, they would go to your home, 
They would confiscate your property, and if you still couldn't pay by selling off your property, they would have you thrown in prison. This, your fellow countrymen, the Jewish men. But they had a better scheme going too. They would say to you, look, I know you can't pay now, but I will lend you this amount that you need. Right? What do we call those today? Loan sharks. Nothing's new under the sun. They would say, I would lend you this money and you can pay me a little bit extra, brackets, 50% and more profit, and then you can pay me back. Right? Does that sound fair? And so people would take these loans so that their properties wouldn't get sold off. What happened if you didn't repay then? Well, there was even more trouble for you because these loan sharks would send around their thugs to literally break your legs and they would start one at a time. I'll break the left leg today and I'll come back in a week's time. If you still can't pay me, it's the other leg, bro. And so they would send around their thugs. Now, can you see why they were hated? All right, that's looking better. There's a bit of shock around. Can you now understand why Zacchaeus was such a hated little man? You see, there were three levels of tax income gatherers. Zacchaeus was one of the chief ones. They had chiefs. Then they had franchise owners who owned a few of these franchises. And then they had single franchise owners. Now, Zacchaeus was one of the chief ones. He owned a lot. He was in charge of the region. And that's why in Luke chapter 9, he was such a hated little man. So these were the tax gatherers, the dogs of Rome, as they were called. And they were so hated by the Jews that they were even excommunicated from temple worship, from synagogue. They weren't allowed in there. And they weren't even allowed to serve in a Jewish court of law at all. They didn't even take their word as witness. So they were hated. So you got the picture? All right. Now, Jesus, we, we move the camera, as it were, from last week to this week. Jesus, walking down next to the Sea of Galilee, he's healed the paralytic man. He's forgiven the four sins and the paralyzed man from their sins. And now he's walking, and our text says, after that, so it's kind of linking these two scenes, Jesus is walking down next to the Sea of Galilee, And he comes upon, says our text, Levi. Levi sitting next to the sea. What do we know about Levi? Well, look at the text. He was the son of Alphaeus. We know Levi's name means attached. Attached, referring back to Genesis 29 verse 34. But in this case, very much attached to his money. So he had a very apt name. It's like mine, Calvin, bald. All right. Sometime later in his history, and it might have been after this incident that we're just talking about, he got a new name of Matthew, which means gift of God. But we're not told when. But at this stage, when we're talking about him, he's called Levi. And here is Levi, as Jesus comes walking past, sitting at the place of toll, at his toll booth, at the customs house. The Gospel according to Matthew 9.9, and you can read those parallel passages, tells us he was sitting at the customs house. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 says he was sitting next to the sea. And so we've kind of narrowed in this camera to next to the sea, next to the toll road. You see there was a main highway running down on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, 
linking Syria to Egypt. And that is where the tax collectors would sit in a row and you'd have to come past there. You'd have to come and dock your boat over there. And that's when they got the money. And so there is Levi sitting there. And our text says that Jesus noticed him. Now, don't glance over that word. You see, the literal word used there is Jesus gazed intently at him. So Jesus didn't just come by and, oh yeah, there's Levi, and carry on walking. Jesus noticed him. He gave him an intent look. He looked at him. You see, here was another divine appointment about to happen. These things don't just happen by chance. Jesus knew what he was about. And he was about to make an example of this filthy little Jewish man sitting over here. Jesus does the unthinkable thing. Remember, most of his disciples at this stage are still Jews. Jesus now does the unthinkable thing and he stops next to this man, this hated man. And then he opens his mouth and he utters words they never thought they'd hear. What were those words? Follow me. Now, I can't read hearts. The text doesn't tell us. But something must have been already happening in Matthew's heart. He knew who Jesus was. He would have cased out his joints. He knew exactly what was happening. He might have even heard the gospel message before. We are not told what was happening in his heart. And yes, it might have been with surprise that as he was sitting there collecting tolls, suddenly Jesus stops and looks at him and says, follow me. But I think the greater response would have been from the disciples, you see. I can just imagine the disciples saying, Pardon? This man? Jesus? Jesus, are you sure? This man? Him? Do you know who he is, Jesus? You see, Jesus didn't say to Matthew or to Levi, he didn't say to him, Hey, Levi. If you clean up your act first, you know, I could really use your talents. And so come and see me. Your people see my people when you are cleaned up. Come and see me and then you can become my disciple and then follow me. He didn't say that. He said, Levi, as you're sitting there in front of your toll booth, holding on to your money, Levi, follow me. Come as you are, Levi. Leave everything as you, as you have it. Just come. And here's the amazing thing, you see, and that's what tells me not just the command Jesus had over people, but also that maybe something was already happening in Levi's heart. Because look at Levi's response. There was instant obedience. What does the text say? There are three things. Don't miss this. He left all or everything, your text might say. He left all behind. And so there was a decisive break here. There was a state of mind. You see, Levi, when he left all behind, he hadn't got up from his booth yet. He left everything behind. It's a decisive state of mind. Yes, I've got all my money here. I've got my franchise. I'm leaving it behind. I've made that decision. And that that, that decision follows into action. He got up, deliberate action, not just an intention. Yes, Lord, I'll contact you in the morning. Or, Lord, I'll get round to it. I just want to finish up and tidy up my books and balance them up. And then I'll come and see you, Lord. No, he got up and he followed 
Jesus. And the text literally says there, it's in the perfect continuous tense, he was following Jesus. It makes a difference. It wasn't just a once-off thing, he followed Jesus. It was a, I am following you now, Jesus. And Matthew never looked back. Levi became Matthew, he never looked back again. He even became one of the gospel writers. God used him, you see. He was obedient to the Lord. I just sometimes wonder how different our lives would be if we responded so instantly when the Lord speaks to us. When the Lord brings something to our attention in our lives and we give that instant response, yes, Lord, I will listen, we get up and we continually follow. How different our lives would be. But sometimes I think we put what we need to do for the Lord in the get round to it basket. Yes, I've heard the Lord's call. Yes, I've heard the stirring of the word as he speaks to me through the word. But Lord, I'll get round to it in the week. And it's gone. We need to be instantly obedient. When the Lord says, follow me, we get up and we follow. You see, there is a great cost, and there might be to you as well. There was a great cost to Levi. He had to leave his whole franchise behind. What did that mean? He had to leave behind his income. Yes, his money. He had to leave behind his calling, his whole career. That's all he knew how to do. He needed to leave behind his contract with Herod. And that meant from now on, Herod and his soldiers would hate him too. And not all. And remember, Herod wasn't a Roman. He was an Idumean who was a Jew, who was classified as working for the Jews. Levi would also be hated, hated by the Roman Empire and anything to do with Rome now because he would have to abandon his future as a tax gatherer for them. And they would now lose revenue because he resigned. And so he would be hated by the Romans too. In other words, he would be hated by all. The Jews already hated him. Now Herod and his minions would hate him and the Romans. The only one who loved them at this stage, not even the disciples, was Jesus Christ. Wow. And so Levi loses a career. But listen to this. He loses a career, but he gains eternity. Because he gets up and follows. And I can just imagine what he did. If you look at verses 29 to 30, he can't wait. He says, Jesus, Jesus, you need to come home with me. I want to put on a benefactor's feast for you. You are now my benefactor. You are the one who looks after me. I want to give you some honor, Lord. Come home with me. I've got a big home, Lord. And I can supply food. And I will honor you through what I've got, Lord. And so he puts on this feast. And look who he invites, verse 29 and 30. Who does he invite? All the holy people. Yeah, all you Pharisees, you come along. I want you to be with Jesus. You disciples, you come along. And bring any other disciples. I want to be with you people. No, what does he say? He brings in all the tax collectors and the sinners. What a motley crew that must have been. I can just imagine them sitting at the table, nattering to each other. And there at the head of the table sits Levi. And they hadn't quite heard what had happened to him yet. But I'm sure as they sat at that long table, the news would have started filtering down. And the knives would possibly have been put away 
and maybe put under a seat somewhere as the thieves who were sitting there, who would have been working for Levi, those thugs who broke people's bones as they sat there. And they heard, what? Levi? What? Who's this man? You see, what was the intention here? What was Levi's intention of throwing this big party? Yes, it was to honour Jesus Christ, but why didn't he just invite Jesus Christ to his home and have a little soiree there for Jesus? No. He invites a big feast. His intention, you see, he couldn't help himself. He wanted to tell everyone. He wanted to tell his fellow tax collectors. He wanted to tell the fellow sinners who he had used so often in his career. He wanted to tell them about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who had saved him when no one else wanted to have anything to do with him, when everyone hated him. J.C. Ryle said it so beautifully, and I wonder if this rings in your heart this morning. No true Christian ever goes to heaven alone. You see, if your intent is to get to heaven, then yes, I'll get there and I'll be good and that's it. I wonder if you're really a believer. You see, if you're a real believer, if you're a true believer, you will want to speak out the gospel message to anyone and everyone you come into contact with. You don't want to be alone in heaven. You want to take people with. And that's what... Levi wanted. Now we get to the unhappy crew. The Jewish religious leaders, the good old Pharisees. They weren't invited to this party, by the way. They were standing outside. They noted what was happening. They noted the feasting happening. They noted the disciples sitting at the table with these filthy people. And as soon as that party was over and the disciples come out, these religious leaders are there. How come your rabbi, how come Jesus eats with these sinners? How come he associates with these people who are not even religious? How dare he? You see, the Jewish writings said that tax collectors were classified as unforgivable. The rabbis even had a rule which said the following. Listen to this rule. The, the, the disciples of the learned, listen to how sanctimoniously it's put. The disciples of the learned shall not recline at table in the company of the people of the soil. In other words, of the rabble and the riffraff. Can you see their noses as they say this? Yes. You see, what was in the Pharisees' mind was contamination must be avoided at all costs. They are dirty. We are clean. And yet Jesus sits as a religious teacher, as a rabbi, the claimed Messiah, the one who says, I have come that you might know the good news. And he's eating and drinking with these sinners. Before you point the finger too far at these Pharisees, think of your own attitude too. How comfortable do we get sometimes as a church with just being us here? And then the Lord brings in someone who's slightly different. And suddenly we're looking down our noses. Hmm. I wonder how they're going to fit in. You see, it's not far from home. What has Jesus come to do? He becomes a physician to the physicians. 
Jesus responds to the Pharisees with an image that they should understand, and that is of the physician healing the sick, you see. These Pharisees, who were supposed to be Israel's religious physicians, they were supposed to be the ones who looked after the nation, they saw themselves as healthy, and everyone else as sick, and they had to avoid these people. So it's like a doctor saying, I need to avoid patients. Imagine how that would go down today. And so follow Jesus' argument. Don't miss it here. Jesus says to them, he says, If then these sinners and tax collectors are so sick that they don't, don't they need a physician? So is it the business of the healer to heal healthy or sick people? The physician needs to be with the sick. You need to be with them and you haven't. I am with them, says Jesus. You haven't been doing your job as the physicians of Israel. And they wouldn't have liked him for saying that, by the way. They would have hated him. You see, Jesus knew that these sinners that he was spending time with and that he was associating with needed healing. He knew that they needed forgiveness. And he didn't wait for them to come to him. Jesus went to them. He went to them. He went to Levi. He went to Levi's feast. And he associated with these people so that he could bring them healing, so that he could bring them forgiveness. He cared for them. He wanted to show them their need for repentance, their need for a change of life and forgiveness. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am here for sinners. You Pharisees, what are you here for? Jesus is here for sinners. This passage in Luke doesn't pick up what Matthew does. And there's an interesting verse in Matthew where Jesus says to them the following. He says, Now go and learn what this means, you Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, what Jesus was doing was quoting from Hosea chapter 6, where Hosea condemns Israel for attention to ceremony rather than caring for the people themselves. They thought if we go through the ceremonies every week, and we looked at that in Malachi too, that God will be happy. But God says, no, I want you to look after and love as I have taught you to love each other. Look after each other as well. Don't just give me your religious observances. Don't just bring me your rules and your keeping of rules. I want actual obedience. You Pharisees, obey me by being physicians to these people who are sick. You see, now we get to that verse in verse 32 where Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus wouldn't help these Pharisees. Why not? Because they didn't think they needed a change of heart. They thought they were well. These physicians were sick themselves. They were in need of curing, but they didn't and they wouldn't recognize themselves as being sick. They wouldn't do it. Pride was in their hearts, you see. They needed a change of heart. They thought themselves as righteous. Why? Because they kept the religious rules. They had no attitude of humble repentance as sinners before God. They were right with God in their own eyes, but they weren't. What does verse 32 tell us? Look at that verse in your Bibles. Jesus came to save the unworthy. I did not come for the righteous, 
I came for the unworthy. What does that mean? And I need you to listen today. If you think Jesus can't save me because I'm too bad, listen to this please. Jesus came for those who are desperate in need. Those who are sinners. Jesus came for the lost. He came for beggars, for the straying, for the burdened ones, for the hungry and thirsty after righteousness. These Jesus came for and those he wants to save. In other words, Jesus says to you and I as well today, I have come for sinners. You see, it's the heart of the gospel. Do you see yourself as a sinner before the Lord? And yes, you might be saved by grace, but you know your life every day. Are you still a sinner before the Lord in the way that you live? He came for you then as well. And it's only when we have sorrow for sin and a a heart that asks Jesus to forgive us that he brings about this transformation that he promises. And this is exactly what Jesus does for Levi. It's a message of grace, you see. Did Levi earn God's grace? No. He ripped off his own people. He cheated his own people. He sent his own people to prison. He had his own people given broken bones. Did he deserve God's grace? No. What is grace? It's God's love poured out where there is no deserving of grace at all. God pours out his grace where it's not deserved. And so I want to come to those so what questions. There are three of them this morning. And these are the points of application. And I want you to listen carefully through this. The first one is this. Have you admitted to Jesus that you are sick? Sometime in your walk, and whether you think you're a Christian here or not, have you ever come to that point in your life where you've admitted to Jesus Christ, Lord, I am sick. In my soul. I need your health put into me. If you've grown up in the church, if your parents have been Christians, if you've grown up surrounded by the Word, my question to you this morning is not how well do you know God's Word. My question to you this morning is, have you ever come to that point where you've said to Jesus, I am sick. You are the great physician. I need you. If you haven't, my friend, It doesn't matter if you've been here for 85 years. You cannot be a believer. You have to come to that point where Jesus is the physician and you are the one who needs him. He will offer you mercy. He will offer you forgiveness. He will offer you compassion if you come to him with a heart which is in the right attitude. He can't do anything for you if you still think you are okay if you still think that you're righteous, if you still think that you're a good person. And I heard that again this week. Do you go to church? No, I don't need to go to church. I'm a good person. Really? What does Jesus say about that? When Jesus looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see sin or does he see self-righteousness? I'm a good person. And you might be sitting here today and you still think, I'm a good person, and therefore I'm going to go to heaven one day. Well, I'm afraid Scripture doesn't say that. It says you must come as a sick person to Jesus, and then he will make you a good person. But he has to do it, you see. 
Turn with me, if you would, to one passage, Romans chapter 3, and you knew I'd get there somewhere today. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. Just turn with me there for a minute. Romans 3, verse 23 to 25. This is what it says, and listen to this. Evaluate your own heart before the Lord. Where are you with Him? Verse 23, for all have sinned. Does your name stand anywhere outside of that word? All? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption or the propitiation, some um, versions say, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as, again, a propitiation in His blood through faith. What does that word propitiation mean? It means a payment has been made to turn God's wrath away from you. That is propitiation. And Jesus was that payment. Have you accepted Him as the payment that turns away God's wrath from you onto Him? Have you done that this morning? Jesus says to you this morning, come for cleansing, come for forgiveness, come for renewal in Him. Secondly, I want to ask you this question. As you sit here this morning, are you a religious person or are you a disciple of Jesus? In the prayer meeting this morning, someone was praying about God didn't just bring salvation, He brought His kingdom to us. It's more than just salvation, you see. It is salvation put into action by our obedience. Are you living a life of obedience before the Lord? Or have you, at one other stage, just made a profession of faith, and that's where it's ended? I'm in the boat, I'm going to heaven, that's where it is. Are you living an obedient life before the Lord? Are you religious, in other words, or are you a disciple of Jesus? You see, disciples had to walk after their master, they had to learn to be like their master, they had to do what he did. Do you do that with the Lord Jesus Christ? Does your response to the gospel, if you're a believer here today, does your response to the gospel in your daily life look more like Levi's or the Pharisees? You see, Jesus said, follow me. Is your response to the gospel message in your life every day, is it to follow Jesus? Or are you in the round to it basket? The Pharisees were in that basket. I'll get to it, Lord. Yes, I know this part of my life is not right. I'll get to it, Lord. Give me a few more sermons. Give me a few more Bible studies. And when I'm convicted, I'll get to it, Lord. That's the Pharisees. You're being religious. And you're not being a disciple. A disciple is to follow in obedience his master. What areas in your life, if you think about your life, are you prone to religious thinking and self-righteousness? There will be an area. What does a repentant walk look like before the Lord? See, Levi got up and he followed the Lord. He said, yes, Lord, I will leave everything behind. I will get up proactively and I will continue to follow you. Are you doing the same in your life? And here's a follow-up question to that. Are you trying to do that in your own strength? Because if you are, you know what's going to happen. You keep on falling over, don't you? And so here's a secret, which is an open secret from Scripture. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. God has given us His Spirit, the Helper. 
Why don't we use them? We can't live a godly life on our own. If you try, you will live a religious life. You will not live the life of a disciple. And then lastly, I want to put this challenge to you. As God uses us in this community of Wanganui East Baptist Church, as He brings people through these doors every Sunday, are there tax collectors in your life? What do you mean by that, Calvin? Yeah, I know about the IRD, and I have to pay them quite often. No, I'm not talking about the IRD this morning. You pay them. God has said you do. But I'm talking about those tax collectors in your life, which are those people that you've come across in your life, and you've avoided sharing the gospel with them for one or other reason. You might have it. You might be scared of people. He might be your boss. They might be your colleague at work, and what will they think of me? You might be at school, and my friends will reject me if I start talking about Christianity. Then they've become tax collectors to you. And you are avoiding them like the Jews avoided tax collectors. And God says to us, you are to be a physician to the sick. If you're a believer here today, believe it or not, you've already earned your doctorate. You are a physician to the sick. Be encouraged by that. Because it is God who heals through you. As long as you are with the sinners. And not in a holy huddle and keeping yourself to religious activities and isolating yourself. Are you a physician to the physicians or are they tax collectors in your life? I'm going to end with this statement and listen to it carefully, please. Because you might be sitting in this situation this morning. A man or a woman who cannot admit that they are sick will never go to the doctor. See, if you don't think you're sick, why would you go to a doctor? you first got to admit it. In their ignorance, they will suffer defiantly. It's a pride issue, even to the point of death. And I've known one person in my life who defiantly held out that they were a Christian, but it was so obvious to see that they weren't, because there were no fruit. And they died in defiance before the Lord, thinking they were in heaven. Or going to heaven. Clinging to religious works for our righteousness puffs us with pride and it seals our destruction. But humility leads to the cross. Does your attitude lead you to the cross where Jesus died for you? Or does, it, does your attitude of heart lead you right back to stand right in front of yourself and to say, what a good person I am. I pray that your attitude of heart is one of humility which will lead you to the cross. You see, come to Jesus this morning. Come to Him as a sinner. He loves sinners. And He loves sinners like you. And He loves sinners like me. Come to Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account of where you, the Holy One, reached down to a lowly one, one who was rejected by everyone in his society. And you very deliberately and openly and publicly and lovingly saved him and said, follow me.
And Lord, thank you for that response from Levi that he got up from that place. He got up from his state of sin. He got up from his selfishness and his pride. And he was following you from that day onwards. And Lord, one day Levi, now called Matthew, is going to be in heaven. And we can go and speak to him about this conversion experience that he went through. And I look forward to that day. Lord, continue to do your work through us as well, we pray. Keep us faithful as physicians to those who are sick around us. May there not be any in our lives that we come across that we think they are too bad for the gospel or that we are too good to speak to them. Lord, save us from ourselves, we pray. Point us to you and your cross. Give us humble hearts which lead to you, the one who loves sinners. Amen.